This week's show is brought to you with the kind support of The Economist. In an angry world, The Economist is a dependable island of calm and dispassionate analysis. You might not always agree with their political angle, but you always know that their journalism is evidence-based and trustworthy. In fact, now I come to think about it, they like Europe, they believe in drugs reform, and I think they even came out and supported the Lib Dems, about the only publication to do so at the last election. So what's not to like? If you're listening to this podcast, you may well be an Economist reader already. If not, now is a good time to start, because The Economist are offering a free copy to all UK-based listeners. Get your free copy of The Economist now by texting ANGER to 78070. The Economist, the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Text ANGER to 78070 for your free copy. Standard UK messaging fees apply. Angry feelings are disagreeable. I'm putting you on warning. Just who the hell do you think you people are? They will be met with fire and fury. They make you act and look as well as feel unhappy. Our very way of life... Look at the fear. ...are under threats from extremists. I am your voice. So this is Anger Management with Nick Clegg, the podcast that talks about why there is so much anger in society at the moment. Uh, I basically think, and most of my guests think, and I'll come in in a minute to my guests this week, think that too much anger and too little reason is not good for us. Um, And I am so delighted to introduce uh, my next guest, uh, and I'm going to embarrass you uh, by... You, you can introduce yourself in a minute, but of all the people I met when I was in government, I genuinely never met anyone who had so much wisdom and so much warmth yeah. uh, as, as, as you did. Joe Biden, Vice President of the United States, um, and uh, Joe and I are here together, I should perhaps explain to people listening, in Copenhagen, because we are now founder members of something called the Transatlantic Commission on Election Integrity, and um, Joe and I and others are going to be looking, casting a spotlight on... Um, meddling, mischievous meddling in the democratic process. But back to the theme, Joe. Um, are you an angry person? No, I'm not. You know, every time they'd write about me as vice president, they'd refer to me as the White House optimist. Like, <laughs> I, like I'm the guy, as my grandfather would say, who fell off the turnip truck yesterday. But I've been there longer than all of them. I, look, I, I, I try to put things in perspective, and I know you do too. Um, we've been through so much worse in each of our societies in the recent past, in the last two, three generations. And we're walking around like, oh, my God, woe is me. We're in peril. Fewer people are being killed today than any time in the world history. More people are being fed than any time in world history. But here's what's happened, I think, Nick. I think the reason people are angry is they're frightened because they don't understand what these changes that are going on beyond their control and beyond political control that uh, um, means for them. I mean, we're going through an industrial revolution that mm-hmm. makes the, the, you know, what the Luddites did uh, roaming the Midlands of England, uh, you know, in the early 1800s look like child's play. I mean, the changes are enormous. And, you know, Moore's Law, the artificial intelligence, uh, People look out and say, where, you know, Mm. where do I fit? And it's generated, I think, unintentionally, but realistically, this gigantic, gigantic um, disparate difference in income, income and quality. Mm. You know, you have people in the professional class who uh, are doing much, much better. And I don't just mean the oligarchs or uh, Mm. I, I mean... 
you know, uh, uh, elite lawyers, doctors, uh, um, athletes, etc. But the vast majority of people who are uh, who are not in that position are falling further and further behind. And I think I, I, it's anger, but I think it's, uh, in my view, and I'm you know I'm probably not qualified to say this, but I. I think it, a lot of it has to do with uncertainty and fear. <clears throat> in America, you have for the first time in modern history, parents believing their children's lives are not going to be as good or better than theirs. And in all the years you've represented Delaware, yeah. so what, since yeah. 1972? Wow. Well, I, re- I got wow. When I was five I was, years old, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and stop rubbing it in. <laughs> You know, no, but, no, no, but, I, I say no, that. No, no, I'm joking. I say that glowingly. No, 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 I'm joking. But, but I. But know. I mean, but it's really this feeling that parents are saying, "I don't think my kids yeah. are going to do better than me," which is so visceral. I mean, I, yeah. feel, it as, I feel it as a parent. <clears throat> but is that something you've never seen before in I've Delaware? Never, I've never seen it before in Delaware. I've never really? seen it before in my country. Now, in the last six, eight years, ten years, I've seen it creeping. But I never saw it in the beginning. And the other thing was the reason why we're ugly Americans. We were, we've always believed there's not a damn thing we can't do. Yeah. No, I, I really mean it. I was yeah. raised in an environment where it was, this is America, yeah. damn it. We can do anything at all. Which is a wonderful thing. For no, non-Americans, no, no, be, I mean, no, no it's, it's no, genuinely what we... But, 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 but it was, it, it's a genuine, a genuine feeling. And, and, uh, um, and, but there's this sense that, um, you know... Uh, the future looks so bleak, but then think about it. You can get on your cell phone and see a beautiful little baby washed up on the shores of Turkey yeah. in an instant that it happens, and you think, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Every bad thing that happens, as long as every good thing that happens, is instantaneous. Yeah. And there's no filters anymore, Nick. There's yeah. no filters where you don't have, figuratively speaking, an editor saying, let me put this in context for you. Yeah. Let me, and so I think I think people are, you know, people fear change. They fear things that uh, are uh, are new and uncertain. And uh, and couple with that, I think there is a grown. I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but I think there's a grown elitism in my country, and I think in yours as mm-hmm. well, where. There, and even among uh, social democrats, like, uh, quote, liberals, yep, um, yep. that somehow uh, ordinary people are incapable of doing extraordinary things. Mm. That's how we were raised. I was raised in a household where we weren't poor, but we were typical middle class. We lived in a three-bedroom home with four kids and a grandpa uh, mm. and my mom and dad. And it was a safe neighborhood, and I got a... I borrowed to get an education, but I got a good education. My mm-hmm. parents did well. We never had to worry about food on the table. But I was raised to think that I could do anything I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I could be anything I wanted to do. That's amazing. Be. No, for real. I mean, it's and you real. wouldn't, and 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 uh, a young Joe Biden today wouldn't <clears throat> have that feeling in in Delaware. Well, I, th- or? I, I think a lot still do, but I think there is a group of people who, where their parents have broken their neck their whole life, reached a place where, in some cases, working two jobs, they were able to... Let let me define what I mean by middle class in my country. Being able to own a home and not just rent it. Mm. Being able to send your kid to a local park, you know they'll come home safely. Mm. Being able to send to a local high school where if they do well, they can go to college. 
If they get to college, you can figure out by hook or by crook how to f finance them getting there. And being able to take care of your, geri your geriatric mom when your dad dies and hope your kids never have to take care of you. Mm -hmm. That's sort of a basic, uh, it's a value set. Yeah. As rather than, a num as rather a than an income number, yeah. Because all the economists who work for me and still work for me at university are, I'll say, what's middle class? Say $50,240, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, it's, it, 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 it's so much more. But what's happened now is, um, let me give you an example. In the United States of America, in the last, don't hold me the exact number, 15 to 18 months, uh, there are now roughly 200,000 fewer sales jobs in uh, retail marketing. You go into uh, everyone from Neiman Marcus to, uh, uh, to Talbot's to any of the chain stores. Well, guess what? Amazon came along and can deliver it to your home. There's out of, but so, but if you're if you're 48 years old, you've mm -hmm. been making 42, 48, 50 thousand dollars a year of that job. You have a middle class life. You live in a home, and all of a sudden. All of a sudden, yeah. what do you do? There's nowhere else to go. Where Where do you go now? There, there. I thought that the prime minister uh, uh, of Denmark made a good speech today. Mm -hmm. We both heard. Mm -hmm. He said there are ways to adjust if your governments will listen to accommodate the needs of those folks. For example, um, I, I I went to. Uh, 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 you have one of the greatest universities in the world. You can graduate from Oxford with a doctorate degree in astrophysics. If you do not continue your education in the next 10 years, you'll be obsolete. Yeah. I mean, literally, you will be obsolete mm. because of Moore's Law, what we're learning, how rapidly things change. So there's things we can do. Mm. We can provide for continuing it. We can afford it, by the way continuing education. And it doesn't always have to be college. It can be trades. Uh, I'll, I'll give you one example, Nick. And the president gave me all the easy jobs, like Iraq and uh, Ukraine and, you know, Detroit mm -hmm. when it went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, but uh, Detroit got back on its feet, an industrial city in America that was, uh, you know, a very vibrant city. It went bankrupt. But now it's back. It really is back. And, uh, but here's what happened. Um, during the period of the massive decline and in, in the automobile industry, uh, you know, collapsing, et cetera, and, uh, um, uh, there was a great exodus from the city. Mm. The city comes back. It's growing now. It's a, the downtown is vibrant with young people and the medical profession is there. It's just, it's, it's moving. But they found out they didn't have anybody who knew how to turn on the street lights. You're kidding. Not a joke, because they're all, all automated. Didn't know how anybody to run the water department. Not a joke. In your city in London, you need people with significant capacity to be able to have the infrastructure function. Mm. So we went to this outfit called IT, IT Global. I think, it's, I, don't hold, I, I think that's correct. And they're a placement firm if you need uh, 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 someone to come in and do the tech stuff in your company. And so they went into the, uh, into the neighborhoods, and they found, I think it was 54 people, that they were going to train on how to code. Right. And, um, uh, and it turns out they recruited 
52 or 54, they happened to all be women. They're all African-American, not by design. That's how it happened. And no one more than a high school degree. And about a third of them with a, what they call a GED. They didn't graduate. They went back in at night. Got At the end of a, it was 17-week program. Every one of them had a job. Yeah. Lowest paying job, 48000 Highest, 102000 Wow. But among even people in my party, the party of the people, the yeah, Democrats, yeah, it was, I don't know, you can, these people really learn code. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's not about being black. It was about you mm. could be a poor white community, mm. poor, but can they really yeah. learn this? Now we've got yes. that big time in the UK. This, this, it's incre- and it's unspoken a lot of the time, like a lot of snobbery in Britain. Yeah. Is, but it, boy, is it prevalent, this view that... a academic university education is always better than a practical or you know what you're yeah. describing life but can i just on the politics of this church sure you you describe and i remember this from the time i was in government and, and you know you, you and, and president obama you you epitomize without <clears throat> flattering you unduly but you did epitomize this wonderful mixture of um, kind of moderation compassion thoughtfulness um on foreign policy, which, you know, we will come to that in a minute, you were, you know, sort of an undisputed, still are, sort of voice of, of wisdom and so on, really thoughtfulness. It's the, it's the way this has flipped so quickly. Now, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to push you to breach the sort of tradition that you don't speak ill of, you know, yeah. a president when you're abroad. But so, so make it more generic. And, of course, we've experienced the same thing in the UK with this eruption of Brexit. And suddenly all this kind of stuff comes out of the woodwork and there's, and there's anger and there's poison and there's polarization. And we've seen, you know, obviously everybody in Europe has seen this furore about these poor kids on the border. In, in, can I just ask you then, I mean, how does that make you feel? If you, if you and your administration... Shame. Ashamed. Hmm. Makes me feel ashamed. I really mean it. I mean, it's... Uh, and, and I'm proud of the response of the American people, Democrat and Republican. Um, this is not America. This is not who we are. We, we are not as good as we believe are, but we are much, much better, better than, yeah. than, and, uh, I, you know, I, I, I've been saying for a long time, you know, the reason why the rest of the world in large part is repaired to us is not the example of our power, but the power of our example. Mm. And we are setting a signal that is just, I just think is so so damaging to our ability to be a positive force in being among the leaders in the world, whether it's that or whether it's praising uh, Duarte or praising uh, um, Putin or praising uh, Kim Jong-un. I mean, what, what are we doing? It doesn't mean, you know, I'm one of those people, and I think you agree, that we have to have a relationship, that we can deal with the most dangerous uh, 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 most dangerous elements of our relationship with the Russians and with every, with the Chinese and others. But my God, mm. you don't pretend because you could work out an agreement years ago on arms control that all of a sudden the Soviet system was a great system. Yeah. It was about mutual protection and protection of humanity. And so what's happened now is that, look, I, I was raised by a dad um, who... Uh, uh, thought the greatest sin, and this is a quote he'd use, he'd say, the greatest sin of all is the abuse of power, mm-hmm. whether it's physical or whether it's moral or whether it is, it is psychological or whether it's economic. And so I was raised in an environment that, um, uh, that and he'd say the cardinal sin of all was a man to raise his hand to a woman or a child. 
And my dad, who never once raised his hand to any of us, but the most devastating thing he could say to you is, you disappoint me. Mm. He said it to me only twice in my life. I remember both times oh, to yeah. this day. And, and, and so I was raised with this notion that, you know, character is not made up of one big decision. It's a thousand little decisions. If you lie to the waiter, you're going to lie to me someday. Mm. It's not, it's not, this is I not. so, so strongly agree with that. I, I think people underestimate that if, if folk, I couldn't agree with you more, if, and particularly the most powerful, again, I don't, don't want to, but if very people of great power act casually, irresponsibly, insensitively, it actually gives, the unspoken message is, well, it's okay to do that. That's right. So can do that in, every, in, in, in every walk of life. That's Silence mm. is complicity. Mm. Silence is complicity. Our children are listening. Mm. We have a very uh, talented uh, conservative columnist in the United States named David Brooks. Oh, yes. I read his stuff. And he's really very yeah. good. And, uh, and he wrote a book on character, by the way. But uh, um, he talks about there being this invisible moral fabric that holds up society. It's made of, out of basic norms and, uh, and traditions. He calls it, he uses the Greek phrase padea, the, you know, the noble citizen. Mm. And when, it start, when you start to shred that, no institution is free. The guardrails come down. Things begin. And you can't to, legislate for it. And, and you can't. No. You can't legislate for it. But, and so when you have, whether it's a president or a business leader or a, a, a movie star, when you have them saying things that violate the basic norms, like not treating people with respect, not uh, um, giving hate no safe haven. Giving, when those barriers come down, notwithstanding the fact we have a written constitution and your common law is what we have based everything on, is it, it, the center will not hold. Mm. And uh, Yeah, and that's what, I mean, I have to say, that I, I'm not the first person to say it's one thing that has always struck me about you is your um, your ability to relate how people just treat each other as human beings with wider political principles, which is kind of, you know, because so many politicians talk as if everyone only exchanges statistics and policies. Um, and I just want to touch on this because you, you've written this very moving, uh, very revealing book, um, Promise Me Dad, which was, I think, was published some yes, uh, months last ago. Last November or so. Yeah. yeah. Um, just, um, I mean, I think I know the answer, but, but um, and obviously it deals uh, searingly with, with the death of your son, Bo, but why did you feel you, what, what, what drove you to write it? Well, I'll be really blunt with you. It's, uh, um, <clears throat> selfishly as a dad, I wanted my progeny uh, today and 50 years from now to know what a remarkable man my mm. son was of all the men and women I've known, and I've, like you, had an opportunity to meet almost every major world leader or figure in whether it's sports, literature, whatever, science. I've never met a finer man. And um, again, my, one of my dad's mantras was, never explain and never complain. I can honestly say from the day Bo was born, I never once heard him complain. Really? And even and, through the illness and the cancer. This, this, uh, this terrible fight with stage four glioblastoma, he knew he wasn't going to make it. It's just a question of when. And, uh, you know, and he also, uh, you know, he was, uh, 
He was the most popular elected official in the state of Delaware, including his dad. Um, he was uh, he was uh, he was a decorated war veteran in a year in Iraq. He volunteered before that as a U.S. attorney to help Kosovo set up the their criminal justice system. He was in Pristina for the better part of a year. Um, and to Bo, everything was about duty and honor and, um, and uh, ne never proselytizing. And, uh, and so I, I wanted people to know who he was. Secondly, I didn't want this to be about grief. Um, I wanted it to be about, uh, about uh, redemption, about give people hope that if you can find purpose after loss, mm. it's your way out. It's your way to deal with that loss and internalize the good part of what you lost. And so I wrote it in the attempt to uh, give people hope. And so we went on a book tour. I'll ask my staff to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think over 80,000 people showed up wow. in, the, in the 40 cities that we uh, went into. Wow. And, uh, and, and a lot of people, of course, who would have suffered their own loss. And yes. Fact, yeah. And amazing, Nick, how many would come up and say, I had I to come. I mean, I'd be in a, in a photo line, and a woman or a man would say to me, I had to see you, and hug me and say, I lost my daughter five yeah, days five days ago, or I lost my son two weeks ago. Because people desperately yeah. want hope when you lose part of your soul. Yeah. And so... And the third reason why I wrote it was to um, uh, to let people know that, in my view anyway, I in, er, earlier in my career, uh, um, I got elected uh, before I was eligible to be sworn in to the United States Senate. And in the interim between being elected and sworn in, I got a phone call when I was mm -hmm. hiring my staff that my wife and daughter had just been killed. And my two sons were badly injured, were not likely to make his a tractor trailer broadside of them Christmas shopping and kill my wife and my daughter. And and I uh, um, and so I wanted I did I, I, I wanted people to know that mm -hmm. um, that if you can find purpose in your life, you can deal with loss and you can internalize all the strengths. That were uh, uh, that you had in the relationships, mm -hmm. and but mainly to give some hope. But I wanted them to know, and the reason why I was so, and I've never been, I've never fact checked so meticulously because I didn't want anyone ever to be able to say yeah, yeah. anything I said, one comma, one word about my bow was not accurate. I mean, I never wanted to be put in that position, and and so I talked about what my other life required me to do yeah, during I, this period. Yeah. So well, there's extraordinary passages about you talking being by his bedside and then rushing off to take telephone calls with well, the Iraqi well, well, Prime Minister well, one moment. Well, as, as, as you know, because you've done it, I mean, every hospital yeah. room he was in, they'd take the room next door and put a secure line in. Yeah. Uh, and it would be, you know, uh, uh, or I would, uh, you know, I'd... Uh, and, you know, you're flying what we call the blue and white, you know, the aircraft, the U.S. aircraft, blue and white United. But they also have just a plain white, look like a nondescript plane. So when Bo would be having a, an additional operation down in, in Houston at MD Anderson, one of the great cancer hospitals, uh, I would, they'd arrange, the Secret Service arranged for me to get to the airport, land in a commercial airport, 
get me out without anybody knowing I'm there because Bo didn't want anybody to know what was going on. So it was, but I wanted, you know, there's so many people, Nick, this very morning that got up suffering much greater loss than I had without any of the help I had. And they put one foot in front of the other and they do it every day. There's so many incredible people. And I wanted them to know that I know that, 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 that mm. it is a, and I had enormous, I have a family that is, my sister is my best friend in the world, uh, uh, my, my mother helped me raise my kids, my, I mean, my, I mean, and I just think to myself, all those people, and you know them, I'll bet every one of you know somebody who's had a tragic loss, and they go out and they do their job, and they take care of their family. Mm. And uh, and it's about hope. You know, well, I'm sure that, well, I know that would have given a lot of people a huge amount of, a huge amount of comfort. And, and I think you're being you're, you're being like Bo. You're you're on complaining and being modest. But I mean, that to, to have suffered those kind of losses uh, is is is, you know, I, I marvel that um, that you're still standing, so to speak. But um, but it, uh, it, a very brave thing to have written a, a, a book like that. I, I must say. Well, it turned out to be harder than I thought <clears throat> to, um, to write it. Yeah, uh, the hardest part was. Uh, as you know, having written yourself, um, you also, I uh, signed a contract to write the book and I signed a contract with an outfit called Audible, where you read the book and oh, they yes. asked me to read it. It took me 15 hours in a soundproof room to read it because it was so much harder to say the words I bet. I bet. than to write the words. But you know what it ended up, Nick? My mother... My mother was an incredible person. We all think our moms were, but I grew up uh, having a mom that all my friends wish they had had. Um, <laughs> and uh, for real, she's a woman of real judgment and wisdom. And uh, she used to say, Joey, out of everything bad, something good will come if you look hard enough for it. Mm. And what I found in doing the book, it was also a catharsis for me. Of course. Because I couldn't, before that time, talk about my son without breaking down. After he died, um, and he very much wanted me to seek the nomination um, to run, uh, my son Hunter, who's the brightest guy I know and a wonderful man, um, and his best friend, he was like his 13th rib, uh, um, said, Dad, you know, we Bidens do best under pressure. Maybe if we run, this will be the thing that will bring us together and force us mm. to focus on, on something other than the pain. So why did you not run? Well, because, uh, uh, so I, I said, okay, in September I said, I'll just go out and accept some of the invitations. Not run, but this just run campaign. September 2015. Um, and uh, so I was going to Denver to speak at a Democratic Party function. And I got in the plane. I was feeling pretty good about it, and I was thinking, oh, maybe, maybe this, maybe my son's right. This will occupy my time and effort. And uh, and I got off at an Air Force base uh, in, uh, in 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 Denver, Colorado, the Air Force base there. And so what happens is that when Air Force Two would land, there'd always be a rope line set up about 75 yards away with. If it was a military base with military personnel there and their families to wave and say hi. And uh, 
I, I know you're not supposed to do it, but I'd always run over and talk to them and thank them for being there. So I jogged down the carpet and ran and said, thank them for their service because they, a lot of them served in Afghanistan and Iraq like a lot of your boys and women and did. And uh, I felt, I thought everything was going well. And all of a sudden I heard from the back, Major Bo Biden, sir, would have followed him anywhere, sir. Bronze star, sir. Conspicuous medal, sir. Great soldier, sir. And I could feel myself dissembling. It was like someone hit me in the head with a baseball bat. And all I could do was just get to the limo and get in the car mm -hmm. and leave. And I realized, which you know better than most, no man or woman should ask a country to let them lead the country unless they can look them in the eye and say, you have my whole heart, mm -hmm. my whole soul, all of my energy. That's it. And I realized mm. I wasn't strong enough. I just, uh, I just, mm. even though my family was prepared to, uh, mm. because what you do happen, Nick, and I know you know people who have gone through what I've been through and more, what you tend to do is, at least I did, is you tend to want to keep yourself occupied. There's yeah. that famous quote from Shakespeare, I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. Mm. And so uh, what you do is you, uh, um, you try never to sleep. You keep going. Yeah. Keep going. Mm. And, uh, and so it, it, and it, it, it helped me a great deal in my first loss, and uh, so much so, this last time out, my wife, Jill, went to my chief of staff and said, you've got to, don't let him accept these things, mm. because you get, you know, you do, you get too tough, but it is, it is a thing, there is such a, and so many people who listen to this podcast will know this because they've been through it, it's like you have a black hole in your chest. And you just got to fill it the whole and time. And you get sucked into it unless mm. you fill it up, mm. you know? And so that's why mm. uh, why I didn't run. But uh, I find that um, uh, doing this book tour... Uh, a lot of people will be really, asking, what if, what if? But I mean, what if is oh, one of the great games of politics? You know, could, yeah, if yeah. the dog hadn't stopped, he would have caught the yeah, rabbit. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? Uh, This episode is brought to you with the kind support of The Economist, and you can get your free copy now by texting ANGER to 78070. For over 170 years, The Economist has delivered trustworthy intelligence that helps people like you choose where to stand on the issues that matter most. The Economist is about far more than just economics and finance. It covers a huge range of subjects from politics and business to science, technology, arts and the environment. And if you're enjoying this episode of Anger Management, then you'll like The Economist's take on the remaking of the US government from this week's issue. Behind the chaos of the headlines, Donald Trump is reshaping the institutions of American government. How will that impact US politics in the future? That's The Economist, the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Get your free copy now by texting ANGER to 78070. Standard UK messaging fees apply. I heard you earlier this morning give a great, great speech and you used a phrase which I wrote down which I loved. You said that, um, I think you're referring to, but this is what I wanted to ask you, that you were referring to if, if you neglect 
the institutions and the practices and the multilateral disciplines and everything we've built up, particularly between Europe and America, to try and keep the world safe on an even keel. You use a lovely phrase. You say, but you, 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 you sand down the... Yeah. You sand down the, the, the kind of the institutions and yeah. principles of a, which keep a democracy healthy. The guardrails come down. I yeah, mean. but can, if, you, if, you, if, if, if those things are being eroded and sanded down, can they be built back up yes. easily? Yes, that, they can. That's, I mean, it's really important. Y- yes, they can. And look, it's, it's a, um, I, I keep, I know you're, we've, you're a friend, but we've only been together a couple of days. You've probably heard me use this phrase more than once already, but it is, um, uh, uh, we've been through so much worse before. And we, there, there's no reason why, I just speak for my country, but I think yours it applies to as well. Um, there's no reason why we can't own the 21st century. I mean, look at where we are. We have the great. We have the most productive workers in the world. Three times as productive as workers in Asia. We have more great research universities in the United States of America than all the rest of the, the world together. combined because of a guy named Eisenhower when Sputnik went up and put this 20-person wise person committee together as how to invest. He said, no, no, let's not invest it in government investment, but let's give it to universities. So every major laboratory in America is a, is a university yeah. laboratory with the exception of DARPA. We're in a situation where we have we have agile, you know, venture capitalists. We are energy independent. Mm-hmm. We're going to be by 2021 producing more oil than Russia produces. I think all of these things apply more to America than Little Britain. But anyway, we'll, no, we'll, we'll come no, to no, that. But no, but that's but here, here here's a connecting point I wanted to make. No matter whether we have all of those things and what our ability, I mean, there's been no new product that has been world-changing. It hadn't come out of one of those research universities. Mm. I was with the chairman of the board of, uh, of Google. Wanted me, he asked me to help him get funding for not Google, but overall for, uh, for uh, pure research. And uh, we were both on the, and we were before a large group of people. And I said, tell them where you got the algorithm for Google. He said, Stanford University, and you paid for it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the idea that somehow this is, you know... But you, you are, I think, are the person who, I think this is right, you, you are, this is at least said about you, that you've spent more time with Xi Jinping... I have. ...the leader of China than... Do, how, well, how does he regard uh, the relative strengths of I think, America and China? I think with uh, a bit of envy. Um, let me, uh, and the reason why I spent more time with him is his predecessor, President Hu, and President Obama. And, you know, the things I always say, you say, I bring things up. Well, the one that Barack always kids me about, as Joe would say, all politics is personal. Mm. You've got to figure out what the other guy's limits are what, or the other woman's limits are. What, what, what you know, you don't expect... I, I never expect when I sit down another leader to put himself in the second editions of Profiles and Courage. That's not an expectation that's rational or reasonable. And so, I, and so he said, you should get to know one another. He's clearly going to be the president, not that I would be, but he's clearly going to run that country. And so I spent, I traveled thousands of miles with him, and I spent, I've had 25 hours, according to the State Department, of private dinners, just he and I. And uh, each of the interpreter, we were in. I think it was in Chengdu, a city in the Tibetan plateau that was six million. Now it's twenty million people. Fifteen years later, 
And he looked at me and he said, can you define America for me? And I said, yeah, I can, in one word, and I mean it. Possibilities. Mm. Unlike our closest ally in the world, Great Britain, unlike France, unlike any other country in the world, totally. in the United States of America, no child ever gets criticized for challenging orthodoxy, no matter what. Secondly, in the United States of America, there is no circumstance where you are uh, um, expected to uh, not believe you can do anything. Mm. I mean, and it's why we're the ugly Americans, you know what I mean? It's part of our, you know, our lack of appeal around the world. It's like, we can do that. <laughs> we can do that. And one of the reasons I think we can is somebody mentioned uh, Lee Kuan Yew today yes. in one of our... I was in Mumbai, and I was heading to, um, uh, to uh, Tokyo, then to Seoul, then to Beijing. And I got a call... When you were in office? When I was in office, yeah. I beg your pardon, yes. Uh, about uh, three years left. It was just... Uh, it was when that airliner went down in, uh, in the Indian Ocean, yeah, and they, and they never found the black yeah. box, or something, whatever date that was. And so... Um, Lee Kuan Yew, as you know, was so sort of what we'd say here, the Henry Kissinger of the East. And, he, yeah. and he, he wrote extensively on the future of China, India, Russia, and the United States. And the reason he wanted to meet with me was he wanted me to talk to me about how rapidly Xi Jinping had, had uh, uh, consolidated power in China. And, uh, and some. And some, yes. Since then. Yeah. Yes. And... Uh, and so I was flattered to stop and get to talk to him. He was then 92. He died seven, eight, nine months later. And um, in the, about, they told me to be careful to not keep him too long. He, he, you know, he spoke perfect English. He spoke, he spoke English more like you than me. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, and, he, uh, uh, and he was frail, but his mind, as my mother would say, was sharp as a tack. And, uh, and so uh, about... Uh, 15 minutes, and I was looking at the clock, about 15 minutes into the conversation, which ended up lasting an hour and a half longer than I was supposed to keep him there. Um, he, uh, I looked at him, I said, Mr. President, what's China doing now? Meaning what, uh, he looked at me and he said, quote, they're in the United States looking for the buried black box. And I looked at him like, you're looking at me. Because, again, this is when that airline went down. I wonder what the hell was he talking about? And I said, I'm, I'm confused, Mr. President. I apologize. He said, they're looking for the box that contains the secret that allows America to be the only country in the world over the last 300 years able to constantly remake itself. Mm. And I said, well, Mr. President, I've been around long enough to venture an answer to you. I said, there's two things. One, if they find that box and open it, they'll find that there's an unrelenting wave of immigration from the 1700s on, occasionally interrupted by xenophobia, but unrelenting. And he looked at me like, why is that important? He said, I may have said that. I said, because what we were able to do is we were able to cherry pick the best of every culture in the world. It takes courage 
if you're sitting around a table in Guadalajara and you have nothing and the dad says to the wife and three kids, I got a great idea. Let's sell everything we have, give it to a coyote, smuggle us across the border, take us to a country that doesn't want us, drop us in the desert. Won't that be fun? Won't that be great? Where my Irish ancestors left in 1849 out of uh, um, County Louth to get on what were coffin ships then. It took, you have to be optimistic. Mm -hmm. It takes courage. It mm -hmm. takes perseverance. And I said, the second thing uh, they'll, they'll, they'll find in that box is that uh, um, in the United States of America, there is this sense that uh, um, anything's possible. Just, any, just, just anything's possible. That, and, and so... So, Joe, you, I mean, it's wonderful to hear that. Uh, uh, um, by the way, I should tell people, because it amused me so much when you said it to me yesterday yeah. when I was, I was telling Joe. I said, I said, I'm a bit of a mongrel. My mum's you know, Dutch, my dad's half Russian. I'm married to this man. You looked at me and said, you sound American. That's right. <laughs> but, no, but I tell you what, can, can I just... Uh, you, you know and love Britain very well. I do. Um, we, it's a, it's I'm a, it's a classic a Anglophile, and that's yeah. hard for an Irishman to say. Right, you bet it is. You bet it. Well, uh, but it, it's definitely not a country for all sorts of historical and cultural and other reasons, which has that that sense, that bubbly sense of constant reinvention and that kind of almost elastic ability to reinvent itself. It it, it just isn't. Um, and so, is, and I, I raise this because a lot of people who listen to this podcast, you know, are kind of uh, like a lot of people in the United Kingdom generally at the moment, are very you know, very kind of vexed about all of this, is that there's a feeling in some parts of the UK that kind of Brexit, this odd, almost accidental political gamble by the Prime Minister at the time, a very narrowly won vote against actually the wishes of all the young people, most of the young people, 70% of whom voted for a different future, might be one of those kind of accidents which just is going to be difficult to re kind of recover from or bounce back from. It, is that how, I mean, I don't want to invite you to add to my sense of gloom, but I mean, do you, how do you see it? And what did you, what did you think when you heard that the United Kingdom had voted to leave the EU? I was really disappointed. Um, in terms of U.S. interest, I was disappointed because you were ballast. Mm. You, uh, if we had any, in a, a bizarre sense, I want to exaggerate to make a point, if we had any voice in, uh, in Europe, it was you hmm. um, uh, and uh, number one. Number two, uh, I was um, not surprised because in times of confusion and great change, hmm. um, I think, as I said, tried to say earlier, um, there, we all become susceptible to the demagogues who, and I'm not saying anyone in particular in Britain was a demagogue, I don't mean that, but those demagogues and charlatans who, uh, in order to aggrandize their power, um, find a scapegoat, find a problem. The reason why this happened is because that mm -hmm. immigrant. The reason why that happened is because of that African-American population yeah. in my state, et cetera. And, um, and what I do see, um, and remember, you know, you said today, I think you said today, that uh, a lot of this wouldn't be the case had we not gone through this most unique of all recessions in world history. It was the financial, financial crisis. Yeah. The, the, That's the, my view. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree. Mm. I agree because, look, a lot of those working class and middle class people in your country and mine and throughout Europe, they had a home. Uh, they may have lost it. 
uh, as a consequence of the uh, uh, of the economic meltdown. But they never got back in the market. So when home values went back up, they're on the sidelines. They and, and now it's harder to. Do you know, Joe, take in. home pay in the United Kingdom on average is estimated not to return to pre two thousand eight levels until twenty twenty five. Yeah. So I mean that is a exactly. lot. So people are working longer hours for the same pay year after year. Well, after year, and that's exactly and, and 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 again, what I think the one of the problems is that. Uh, um, I, I don't understand why uh, conservatives and progressives or liberals can't get together on this. There are ways to compensate for that, not in terms of cash payments, but in terms of uh, maintaining the standard of living those people lost. For example, um, why in my country is it that um, I could put Every single solitary qualified student in a community college, the two-year colleges we have, is the best-kept secret we got going for us, um, uh, and uh, would raise from six to nine million people in community college, graduating community colleges. It cut in half the cost of a four-year education. And when the president asked me to do a study, a year study on the jobs of the future, we interviewed over 300, I think it's 41 CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies in America. And they all basically said the same thing. What do you need most? They said, we need a better educated workforce. Skill, yeah, yeah. But they weren't paying for it. Okay. Yeah. So, and you'd get the same response. And, and so what happened was this, the, the econometric models we used showed that if you had 9 million instead of 6 in community college, you'd raise the GDP in the United States by two-tenths of one percent per year. Now, that would cost six billion a year. And they said, well, there goes that big spend in Joe Biden again. <laughs> except that when, I'm sorry to take so long, but except, it's the best example I can give you, except that when Ronald Reagan was president, there were $800 billion in tax loopholes, tax exemptions, mainly for business. And they made sense in the sense that when our tax system got set up, we said we're going to reward mm. people who take risks. Mm. So you pay capital gains instead of your normal tax if you go out and create jobs and opportunities, et cetera. We also said that we're going to promote social good. So if you contribute to charity, you get to deduct it at a certain mm. rate. You don't pay as much. And we said we're going to encourage what we think is a valuable um, commodity in America, the ability to own a home. So a first-time home buyer, you can write off your interest, that kind of thing. Well, you know, now there are $1,340,000,000,000 in tax loopholes mm -hmm. that can't possibly be justified based on the rationale yeah. that was offered initially. So let me give you one. Now, granted, I, I should have known this, but I mean, when I did my financial disclosure, which we required to do as vice president of the United States in 2009, the headline, the lead paragraph in the Washington Post on page one said, quote, it's probable no man has ever assumed the office of vice president with fewer assets than Joe Biden. <laughs> my net worth was between fifty-five dollars and $150,000 after 40 years in public life, which I didn't think you're supposed to make money in public life. Anyway, so I didn't know there's a thing called in our tax code stepped up basis. What that means is that if you have a gain, a capital gain, and you get in your vehicle to go down to your broker to sell it, you're going to pay a capital gains tax, which is less than what you'd ordinarily pay for having made that money. 
But if God forbid you get hit by a truck and you die and you leave it to your daughter, she pays nothing. It's not an inheritance tax. It was a tax due five minutes earlier. Now, that cost the federal government $17 billion a year out of $1 trillion, $400 billion. It punishes no one. Mm -hmm. It produces no additional benefit. growth or benefit. And yet, if you took that $17 billion, took six to pay for free education for community college and reduce the deficit by $11 billion. You'd add to productivity mm -hmm. and no one would be hurt. But we walk around like, oh, my God, how are we going to do this? Mm -hmm. We have all these problems. I mean, you know, I think I may be mistaken. I think when we saw each other a couple times, you kidded me about when I landed in LaGuardia Airport, I said, if you landed in LaGuardia Airport in New York, and an airport in Beijing, and I blindfolded you at 2 o'clock in the morning, took the blindfold off, and we were sitting in the middle of the airport, and I said, are you in a third world country or are you in a developed country? In Beijing, you'd say, I'm in a developed country. In New York, you'd say, I'm in a third world country. There was actually an escalator in, in, in yeah. LaGuardia Airport saying, in I think uh, April or May, we'll be repaired by the first of the year. This is the greatest, in yeah. my, my view. The no, but, but I think Europeans always remark on this. Always, if you talk to Europeans from most European countries who go to the States for the first time, they, yeah. the first thing you often hear is, wow, it kind of needs a, you know, particularly it needs a bit of a lick of a paint. You know, Bingo. You know, the, and so here we are. <laughs> here we are when I said that. One of the wealthiest, most powerful countries. So I, I, I made that, and I got, I got, I got pilloried I for saying it. I bet you did. Except you're by, to say like, well, he's the greatest by, the airport except in the world. that by the mayor, the governor, and everyone else. <laughs> so the next week, I'm landing in LaGuardia doing an event in, in New York. And the pilots in Air Force Two asked me to come up to the cockpit, joking with me. And they said, Mr. Vice President, is it safe to land? <laughs> so we land, I come back. And as you know, the tradition is, and as your government as well, when, you're, when you go back to the government plane, there's always police officers, some there, they want a picture, or you thank them, and you know, you say, well, oh, there's all these guys and women in these brown suits with these neon um, yellow uh, um, uh, bands around them. Turns out they are the, uh, the union guys who run the airport. And so I'm getting out of the car. I said, oh, God, here we go. And I'm walking up, and there's eight of them there. And the first guy said, Mr. Vice President. I said, yeah. He said, Thank you. You're right. <laughs> yes, right. We ended up, now, now there's $9 billion, $6 billion being spent. And when you land in one of the greatest cities in the world, you're going to go out and say, this is one of the greatest cities in the world. Mm. But what happened to us? What happened to my country when we start to settle for, in America, escalator will be repaired in two, three, or four months. There is a book written by Friedman um, and uh, uh, he talked about uh, that used to be us. What the hell happened mm. that we go, well, well, I guess, you know, we can't quite do that. And it is, it started, and he's a good man, it started with Reagan saying, any problem you have is because of the government. So you had both parties doubling down on, elect me and I'll yeah. take on the government. When in fact... It pretty well, it did, did a pretty damn good job. Um, anyway, 
I don't know what that has and, been. And, and just, I think probably the <coughs> final question, because your, your excellent team here, are, um, this can't be seen by our listeners, but are giving me glowering looks. I think you've got no, more sorry. important things to do. But <laughs> just, just, just um, because you, you talked earlier about um, the significance of the transatlantic relationship between London and Washington and, and London acting as a kind of, sometimes, you know, as a bridge or sometimes even a no. voice for... So kind of what happens now that we have a, this is probably too big of a final question, but I have to ask you this. You, now we've got London kind of, disas- Britain kind of unplugging itself from its European hinterland and, uh, and a, a new American administration wanting to kind of, well, apparently wanting to sort of unplug in whole or in part itself from some of the, you know, some of the multilateral institutions that we've always kind of built up together. A lot of these, uh, you know this so much better than I do, a lot of the institutions which have kept the peace and global stability since the Second World War were built by, amongst others, British and American statesmen and statesmen. So what happens to all of that? Well, first of all, let me explain why I say it's so important to us that um, Britain and, and Europe succeed. Our ability to meet our responsibilities in other parts of the world, as you did in the period of empire, we now have no empire, but you did, the responsibilities you had, um, rests upon having a Europe that's whole, free, and at peace. It is because we've never been able to avoid whatever the difficulty is in Europe. And it is the platform that allows us to maintain our security in our hemisphere, in, 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 in Africa, in Asia. And so, and, and you all contribute as well to, those, to, to that stability. Not enough, and, some would rightly argue, well, perhaps. But, 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 but I, I think that gets exaggerated, yeah. by the way, as well. But having said that, um, so we badly need... Europe, whole, free, and at peace, united. And it is overwhelmingly in our interest that it happened. Now, what happens now? I do not believe that the present position that has been taken, I mean, if I, if I read the polls correctly, eight months ago, 55% of the people in Britain said, well, ah, we, 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 we should have never left, or 58 or whatever it was. I know the prime minister survived a vote of confidence on this issue uh, about a day ago, two yeah. days ago, whatever. But look, look how difficult it is to disengage. You all are going to find a modus operandi. Have to. It's not in Europe's interest writ large. It's not in the continent's interest writ not as large. And it's not in Britain's interest that there not be an accommodation. But it's understandable when you, uh, how people long for the good old days. Mm. And it's amazing how we think about it. I love it when, you know, you'll hear someone say, I love those good old days of the 60s United States. Well, that's when women weren't treated equally, when blacks were, you know, I mean, you look back on it, the good old days weren't quite as good as the good old days seemed to be for the vast majority of people. Oh, some of the Brexiteers talk as if they want to go back to a land, a sort of an age of gumboat diplomacy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, but, but I think, you know, the other expression the president always would tease me about saying, I say, reality has a way of intruding. Mm. And it's beginning to intrude. Mm. And I am confident, 
I am confident that we can cobble back together this alliance of democracies in a way that allows us to adjust to the real changes that have taken place. This is not 1946, 47, or 48. But the principle mm. is as consequential today as it was then. If not more so. And more so. And so there are ways in which this can be accommodated. But it takes two things to happen. I think we've got to go through a period of saying, okay, you want to bite out of that apple? How's it taste? What's going on? How, how do you feel about that? No, number one. No, the polls in the United States as recently as uh, two, three, four, five days ago were saying that the American people, given the choice of, uh, of uh, um, a trade war or closer relations with our allies, majority choose closer relations with our allies. Well, for the first time, they never thought they were going to see an administration stand there and say, Canada, you're my problem. I mean, it was 5,000-mile border with no troops on it. You know, $12 billion a day in trade. Kudos, $16 nice billion. Guy, you, know. you know what I mean? Like, well, what's... By the way, did you see the poll? There's a, I, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this even on a podcast. But, you know, there was a poll I was told in America today. Was it today or yesterday? Today. A, a CNN poll showing that Prime Minister Trudeau has a 48, 49% favorable rating in America. And Donald Trump has a 40 percent favorable rating. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't mean any of that means anything other than sure. I think that you have we're seeing in America. Maybe I'm taking too much of your time, but I look back on um, and I'm revealing what I hate to admit my age. I, there was a famous American baseball player named Satchel Paige. Right. He was an African-American who didn't get to play in the we call the major leagues until he was 45, I believe. And his 47th birthday as a pitcher throwing the ball, he uh, won a game. No one ever won a game at that age. And it was his birthday. And all the press went into the locker room and said, Satch, amazing, 47. How do you feel about being 47? He said, boys, that's not how I look at age. He said, how do you look at it? He said, I look at it this way. How old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? I'm 42, okay? <laughs> but having said that, all kidding aside, I remember coming out of high school and to go to undergraduate school in the early 60s. And the mantra in America after President Kennedy was assassinated was drop, and the war in Vietnam started to pick up, was drop out go to Haight-Asbury, do not trust anybody over 30. It was the, my, the generation that was part of my, the baby boom, they, they're not quite baby boomers, but the people who were two, three, five, seven years older than I was, it was, that was it, tie-dye shirts, leave, don't get involved. 1968, I'm graduating from law school. I only had two political heroes in my life, Dr. Martin Luther King, who got me involved in the first place, and Robert Kennedy. Mm. King was assassinated in my last semester in school. That iconic photograph that every Brit has seen, as well as Americans, of a South Vietnamese policeman with a revolver to the head of a Viet Cong oh, yeah. guy in an intersection blowing his brains, literally blowing them out, ended what we were told that there's light at the end of the tunnel. The war is about to come to an end. From the day I graduated 
till the war ended and I was a young senator helping end it, 17,000 of my generation were killed, mm -hmm. Americans. Robert Kennedy was assassinated the day I walked across, the night before I walked across the stage to get my diploma. Shortly thereafter, on an idyllic campus in Ohio, Kent State, 17 students were gunned down, killed by the military, yeah. shot dead. I could go on the things that were happening. I say to this generation of millennials, you think you had troubles? Mm -hmm. But I tell you what, it, what happened then is happening now in my country. I walked across that stage without any visible... Um, rationale to believe that I could change the world, determined, damn it, to do it. I'm going to change it. <laughs> and my generation did. And what did we do? We ended the war in Vietnam. We, we promoted the women's movement till it became real. The environmental movement began to actually gain momentum and speed. We did some really good things. And right now, what I'm seeing as I go around the country, Nick, and I've, I invite you, and I mean this sincerely, to come with me. I will. I mean, to see some of this. Deal. There is a feeling out there in this generation that is between 21 and 35 that, damn it, enough. I'm going to do something Enough. I've been into numerous races and off-year elections. We've won almost all of them. Mm. And the Republicans are winning, and they're saying, enough. We've got to change. I mean, the, this, new, this generation is getting engaged. I think you're going to see. It's the best way to conclude it. There is, as we used to say, as we say as a, in American baseball, there's pace on the ball. Mm. What's happening now is that you have turnout incredibly higher among Democrats and independents mm. than it is among Republicans. Republicans generally are disillusioned right now, a lot of them. But there is this sense, damn it, I'm taking this country back. And I think you're going to see it in your country. I think you're going to see it in Europe. Well, I wish we could literally bottle uh, that optimism and that, that will to change because it, it's, it's, uh, it's really it's, um, the it's contagious. The alternative is not What? The alternative is not No, 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 but it, it's, it's wonderful. And, and, and boy, this podcast is about anger, but you've, you've swept anger aside and instilled hope and, uh, hope and wisdom. So, uh, Joe, uh, Vice President Biden, I cannot tell you, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you very much. Now, you. I mean it. Yeah. you got to come on the trail with no, me. No, I want to meet these people, these no, uplifting no, no, characters. No, no, really no, I'm, 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 I'm being deadly earnest because what people really want, they want to say, did you hear me? Yeah. Did you hear me? Just, my dad, just showing up is half of it. I can't promise the steelworkers' jobs are going to come back, but I can promise I understand your yeah. pain and there's ways we can help. And I'll work, and I'll work day and night to try yeah. to it. Fantastic. Anyway. Okay, I'll come with you. All right. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to that fascinating and moving podcast with Joe Biden. The next show is in two weeks' time. If you enjoyed the show, then please do subscribe via Apple Podcasts. Just search for Anger Management with Nick Clegg. And if you'd like to give us a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, that, of course, would be more than welcome. 
We're also on Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and all major podcast providers. If you're not so keen on giving up your data to the data giants, you can also download it at audioboom.com forward slash channel forward slash Nick Clegg. Please do follow me on Twitter at Nick underscore Clegg and let us know what you thought of this episode and give any suggestions that you might have about who should be on future episodes. Talking of which, extraordinarily, Paul Dacre has still not replied to my kind invitation. I mean, what he's got nothing to do? He's, he, what does he do? Twiddling his thumbs, looking himself up on Google, throwing darts at pictures of the liberal elite in his office. As I say to my teenage children, you've got to get out of the house. You've got to get some fresh air. Come here, Paul Dacre. Get out of that lair of yours and join me on Anger Management with Nick Clegg. I think it would do you some good. Audio production is by Sophie Black and the producer is Andrew Harrison. Anchor Management with Nick Clegg is a Podmasters production.